Yes, this is it. VegCast 100. VegCast. Spent the whole summer on one podcast? Uh, hang on a second. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. It's been a while since VegCast 99, hasn't it? But that time taken by your friendly VegCast producer has only resulted in an even more than ever full menu, truly a full menu this time of uh, veg, vegetarian podcastery. And we're going to be doing all kinds of stuff. We're going to be looking forward and looking backward. It's VegCast 100, the big centennial episode celebrating 100 years of vegetariana uh, at least 100 episodes. Uh, so what we're going to be doing, we're also going to be interpolating the entire Sounds of Summerfest 2011 into this episode, mixing up the celebration of Summerfest and VegCast to try to piggyback on the good feelings that Summerfest generates, I guess. Also, we're going to be looking back over past episodes. We're going to have some stuff that you have heard before, some that you haven't heard before, uh, some rarities, some exclusives, all kinds of stuff. It's really, uh, really an overfull menu this time. And we also have new music from your Green Beings songwriter. That's myself. Uh, I'll explain that. It's all coming up now on the gargantuan 100th episode of... Yes, it did kind of take all summer to get this podcast together. I eventually, noticing that it was not getting completed, uh, set myself to be sure that it was out before the unofficial end of summer, which is Labor Day, and I am getting that, as is my want, just in under the wire. But uh, that's fine because it really, I think, is, has resulted in a good... 100th episode, it did not start out to be something of this size and uh, would be epic scope, but it, uh, I kind of, I thought I would do this segment where I took a couple clips here and there from uh, over the past episodes, so I had to listen to the episodes and find things, and I found so many good, uh, interesting items to me that I thought I would expand what I was going to do, and it took uh, just massive amounts of time. But the other thing that happened that kind of got in the way of getting this done in a timely manner is that in the course of time since the last VegCast, I have gotten a gig at the Philadelphia Daily News as a vegan food columnist. I am now writing the biweekly column V for Veg, and I encourage you to check that out. That is where uh, a lot of my energies are have been going, just getting this column launched and getting uh, some of the initial stuff uh, to happen. Uh, I think it's a very interesting sphere for uh, me as a vegan journalist and for veganism, and I hope uh, people will find that interesting as well. Uh, VegCast will continue as its own separate uh, podcast entity. But uh, I just had to let you know about that. I don't usually talk about things uh, relating to my day job on the podcast. But uh, in this case, I am working for the Daily News as a as a freelancer. So uh, it's kind of it's all 
freelance goodness, uh, you might say. So without more explanation right now, let's jump into some of the quality content that VegCast 100 has to offer. And this is just a little pastiche, I guess, of uh, a little tapestry, perhaps, of uh, people who volunteered to uh, just generate some audio clips at Summerfest and say what was on their mind, be it about Summerfest or VegCast or whatever they were doing there or what was going on. And uh, let's just spin that now, shall we? Hey, my name's Russell Ellipin. This is my first vegetarian Summerfest. I'm from Fort Worth, Texas, where we have one uh, magnificent vegan restaurant, Spiral Diner. Shout out to the Spiral Diner folks. And thank you to Vance for putting together a podcast for folks like me who learn more and more every time we hear it. This is Jonathan Balcom. I'm at Vegetarian Summerfest in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. If you haven't been to this event, you must come. It is fantastic. And I just want to say bravo to Vance Themkuhl and VegCast. Take care. Hi, I'm Amy Hamlin. I'm the director of the New York Coalition for Healthy School Food. And I'm here having a great time at Vegetarian Summerfest. It's actually the 22nd time that I have come. I've been coming since 1989. It's an incredible experience. There's so many doctors and dietitians and fitness consultants and incredible people here. There's just so much to learn and even after 22 years I'm still learning and mostly inspired by amazing, amazing people who care about making the world a better place. And that is so important to me. This is a refuge for me to come to every year. It's a wonderful place where I've made so many friends. I've watched children go from babies to grown-ups. And um, it's, I highly recommend it to everyone. Whether, no matter how you choose to eat, it's a great place to come and learn. I'm Omar Gould here at uh, Veg Summerfest, and this is a wonderful vacation. It's great to be here amongst a friendly group of people, exchanging ideas and, and uh, enjoying the food. Hi, I'm Dr. Perry Saunders. Hi, I'm John Pierre. We teamed up and made a DVD we hope you all treat yourselves to. It's called When Bachelor Meets Homemaker. We've got breakfast, snacks, and desserts, or lunches and dinners. And we created this DVD because we wanted it cooking to be simple for you, but highly nutritious. And the idea behind the title is, yes, the sparks fly. So it's a fun video series. You want to check it out. But we both have different busy lifestyles for different reasons, and these recipes will work for anyone. We're kind of like an old married couple. We could finish each other's thoughts. So that's part of the, the magic, I think, of the series. But we both agreed our clients through the years have had the same complaint over and over and over again. And together, we have 40 years doing this, working with clients who want to upgrade their life. The, the complaint is always, we want something that's healthy, but we don't want 30 ingredients and we don't want to be in the kitchen for an hour or two hours. So most of our recipes we can rip through in about five minutes. Well, that's great. It is great. Okay, you don't have to be a bachelor to enjoy that. <laughs> and we, we give you a lot of pointers just on nutrition. We talk about phytochemicals and fiber and how to uh, lower cholesterol. 
and just give you a lot of information aside from recipes. Well, we both have a website. Mine is drfood.org, D-R-F-O-O-D.org. And mine is johnpierre.com. Okay, so people go there, order it, they can get all the tips, they can find out how to make uh, delicious food in practically no time. Simple and nutritious. Okay. Thanks, fans, for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, hi, this is Will Tuttle. I'm here at Summerfest. And I have to say, first of all, that I've never missed one of the VegCast episodes. I listen to them and really enjoy uh, hearing all the different perspectives. And it's great to be here at Summerfest again and to see the movement growing and to see the uh, maturity, I think, really, of the uh, understanding of the perspective, not only of, of health, but of the role that compassion and kindness has to play in our culture if we're going to actually create a world of peace and justice and freedom and to see people beginning to awaken to what the vegan ideal is beyond simply looking at the arteries and the diabetes and so forth, which is important, but to see the uh, changes that can be made in spiritual and psychological and cultural domains as well. And so. It's just great to be part of this movement, and I want to thank Vance for all the efforts over many years to help promote a message of compassion and health. Thanks so much to everyone who supports this program. Michael Greger. Yeah. It is 150-some minutes, four, 154 minutes after uh, something historic has happened, and I am right on the scene to get your reaction, and I want you to tell our listeners what it is. Uh, probably, uh, perhaps the greatest thing ever to happen to uh, animals in the United States of America. Uh, the first, um, even whiff of a federal farm animal protection law, protection on the farm for our farm animals. The historic agreement in Washington, D.C. announcement of an agreement between the Humane Society of the United States and the U.S. egg industry represented by their trade group, the United Egg Producers to put in place a federal bill to make it illegal to starvation molt hens anymore, to, uh, to this, uh, building up to the biggie, yeah. and that is the phasing out of barren battery cages in the United States. These cages, these small wire enclosures in which uh, these poor hens can't even, you know, extend a wing, right, for their right. entire uh, year or so before they're slaughtered. These, one of the most egregiously cruel practices, this was banned, uh, decided in 1999 in Europe, we were going to get rid of these horrible little cages, um, but unfortunately here in the United States, we are behind in terms of uh, farm animal protection, but today is the day that uh, the monumental agreement was reached, and uh, so we're going to phase them out and move on to the next egregious horrible practice in factory farming and eliminate that too. Hundreds of millions of animals are benefiting. Okay, 7-7-11, if I'm not very much mistaken. 7-7-11! That's a day that will live in infamy. That's right, I can retire now. All right, well, do you have any, uh, first of all, you've been jumping up and down, bouncing off the walls, like uh, giving people... Surprise pats on the back, head noogie rubs, 
a little bit of boxing of the ears. Um, just you're reacting to all this. Do you have uh, anything that, uh, other than your pronouncement of it, that you want to share with us? If people weren't eating healthy plant-based diets, there would be heart attacks at this kind of news. But yeah. not here yeah. at Vegetarian Summerfest. Okay. Well, Michael Greger, thank you for taking time out from this historic day to talk with us on VegCast. And remember, when this podcast finally comes out, we were there right on top of this breaking news. That's right. Okay. I would expect nothing else from VegCast. And one last sound of Summerfest comprises this VegCast's musical selection. It is a setting of I No Longer Steal from Nature, the poem by Al-Mari, uh, the blind uh, 10th century, 11th century uh, Arabic poet. Uh, and I set this, Sarah Schluter Eisman learned the song and sang it at Summerfest. She did a beautiful job there. Uh, I screwed up some of the playing on the stage and played the wrong chords. Uh, we re-recorded it. Uh, the next day, and this is uh, a recording out in a hallway uh, on a piano that was there. There are some ambient noises, but I hope you can uh, hear and enjoy this. Uh, Sarah sounds great as always, uh, but also uh, I hope the lyrics do come through. They're uh, really an amazing poem and song lyric, hopefully. Here's I No Longer Steal From Nature.
And now we reach the best of segment of the show or the portion where we take a little trip down memory lane. For me, it's memory lane. For you, maybe it is or maybe uh, you're coming to VegCast uh, late in the game. I realize not everybody has been there since VegCast 1, but hopefully you can listen through some of these clips, get some idea of what else is out there and uh, wish that you had been listening all along, but even if you haven't, you can still access all of these at VegCast.com. Now, I want to stress just before we jump into this that uh, I could not include everybody, and I hope that by picking out a few of these, uh, I'm not suggesting that other people's segments were not as fascinating. Uh, some of them just, uh, the, the fascinating part took too long. I had to try to get these down to manageable uh, sound bites and sound clips, uh, even though right now it's still a pretty large, uh, what you call that, full menu of just uh, best of segments. So I want to recognize that uh, everybody has been uh, really great on VegCast. We're going to listen to some of just the maybe more representative moments, hopefully, of different aspects of VegCast and uh, more remarkable moments and things like that. And without further ado, let's start at the beginning with VegCast number one. All right, here we go. On the first VegCast, we toured Mary Rakowski's kitchen as she made her organic star bars. Let's see, Brazil nuts, pecans, hazelnuts, and almonds. Almonds have um, a really high calcium content. Very good for you. Okay, so we're going to grind this up. This is going to be a little loud. Bear with me. Okay, we got that taken care of. Um, now I'm just going to grab some water to put in my oat mixture. Okay. VegCast 3 had the vegan restaurant challenge a walk in real time through Philly, touching the doors of four vegan restaurants. Good uh, food shopping for vegans and vegetarians uh, with the, a lot of great produce that you don't see, uh, tofu in the big vat, so forth. There's 10-10 race, which is where the conference was held. Uh, back in 2002, and here we come to Singapore, and when I touch this door, it is exactly five minutes. So that's the challenge. Here in Philadelphia, it takes five minutes to walk the distance to four different vegan restaurants. Um, so anyone out there, please, I hope somebody will try this. If they try it and fail, well, that'll be good because then Philly's number one. But if they try and succeed, then that's all the better because that means there are even more vegan options out there for everybody. All right. We had music performed by vegetarians on every show. Tyler Shepard's Animals Eyes still sticks with me, recorded live at the first Public Eye Artists for Animals Gallery exhibit for VegCast 4. The weekend ride. 
gaze up to the sky We can find what we lost Once we look deep into an animal's eyes Once we look deep into an animal's eyes For our children we look into speaking lies We will feel the need to kneel by animals We've done wrong And we can ride VegCast 10 had our audio tour of the space that was to become the Philadelphia Horizons with Rich Landau explaining what would be where. So you'll see about um, maybe two, then a four, then a two here. Mm-hmm. Four kind of going with this inner groove of the bar yeah. right here. Okay. Back here, we'll have two more uh, two-seater tables. And you'll also be able to accommodate a big party back there. Okay. So, now this room is far, far, far from done. This almost looks as if, as if you know we just walked in here. This is what it looked like. There's a lot more right. red velvet it does around. I have... Uh, <laughs> A lot of vestiges of the, the previous... Absolutely. It tells place. a story. Well, that's fine. Just to, to yeah. set the scene, though, there are piles of lumber and boards with nails, ladders... I think there might be a body in there, too. Body. You might sure. want to edit that. Okay. That's fine. There could be tile in this wall back there. Um, VegCast 12 has a lot of fun clips from my report from the 2006 Genesis Awards, including a brief conversation with Moby... Uh, but here is James Cromwell discussing Babe, Pig in the City, and the works of Dick King Smith. This is the thing that I don't understand about Hollywood. You make a film, Babe, that makes $400 million. You make the second one, which is arguably almost as good as the first film, a wonderful film. You manage to destroy the opening of it through... Cowardice. Destroy the franchise, and you only make two. You couldn't get anybody in this city to touch Babe again. When you say destroy the opening through cowardice, are you talking about the particular marketing of the the movie or the scheduling of it? Because basically, when George presented them with the with the the film, and they looked at it, they said, "My God, this is not for children. This will scare them to death." In actual fact, the people it was going to scare was adults, right. and adults should be scared. They should be as- afraid of the issues that are in that movie, which is vivisection, right. uh, and the and our our incredible cruelty to animals at every level, our domestic animals, which we. Uh, VegCast 16 is our visit on its opening weekend to Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary, where Doug spent a great deal of time explaining the animals and their activities to us. And I've often wondered lately if he's gotten tired over the years of going into the detail that he lavished on that opening weekend, or if he just keeps it going at this level in perpetuity. But anyway, here's the clip from Woodstock. Oh, he wants to go back home. With two, two, he's got a brother, uh in there and, and he flies out and then he spends the rest of the day going back and forth wanting to get back in at the end of the day he flies back in so I would say people say you know people say chickens are dumb I say chickens are smart 
He's he's not so bright. <laughs> he, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Hey. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. But, uh, you know, butter knives can't cut you. I know. I hope you heard the turkeys laughing there at the expense of the guinea fowl. And predictably, uh, you'll hear them laugh again when Doug... Uh, again, makes fun of the guinea fowl after uh, he had to actually go over and convince the bird that it was able to fly over the fence. This is how it happened. They have. Um, we, yeah. Where's my friend? Where's my friend? Where's my friend? I can go in there and scoot him over the fence. <laughs> Let me see if I can get you. You'll see him fly. If I can get him, stay there because I don't want to see him. walking away from his... I know. And he'll do it again. He'll fly, uh, I bet you, in an hour. By the time we're done with the tour, he'll probably be back over there like, ooh, I'm just hopping. <laughs> so apparently, if you were preparing a comedy night that's to play to turkeys, all you have to do is make fun of guinea fowl. And, uh, of course, we also met some pigs. Uh, we're, we're in the process of filling in. They dug this enormous mud hole there, but we're going to be putting a, another... Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, she's laying on top of some dirt that we stuck in there. They did it all with their noses to make a nice big mud puddle for them. But we have an additional structure that's coming out of here, so we've started to fill it in. It's just been too muddy to finish it up, but we're digging them a new one there. Once you start it, they'll use their snouts and they'll, and they'll finish it. They're very, you know, uh, people talk about, la- you know, lazy pigs. They're very industrious when it comes to being lazy. So if they want a nice <laughs> mud puddle to lay in, they'll work really, really hard. And then for years to come, they just hang out and... When Dan Peraro came to town for the Veggie Cabaret, we had a conversation about how to make cartoons funny when treating an unfunny subject. And that led to Dan recalling this cartoon. Yeah, you turn it around, it's not such a fair trade. So, I, does, I mean, does the fact that we're in such an absurd situation, as you, you were talking about with the Chicken McNabbit, as you, as you lay out the facts, it just seems so absurd that it's almost comical if it weren't tragic. I mean, does yeah. the absurdity of the world that we live in actually help? Oh yeah, help. Uh, oh, absolutely. Come up with those. Absolutely. I had a really dark and cruel cartoon that a lot of people didn't even get. They wrote to me and said, "What does this mean?" And that gave me a great opportunity to explain it to them. But it's uh, it was uh, a view from inside of an egg farm, so it's just uh, floor to ceiling cages stuffed full of as many chickens as you could imagine in a single cage. Uh, they're like poking out, they're losing their fur, their beaks are clipped off, it's dark, and in the center aisle is standing Ronald McDonald, the clown. Mm-hmm. And the chickens are saying basically something like, so what's funny about this? We don't get it. <laughs> you know, what? it's like, this is, you know, this is the, this is the Adolf Hitler of the chicken world. <laughs> right. Well, well, he, well, actually, he's, he's probably the Mussolini of the chicken world. Uh, Colonel Sanders would be the Adolf Hitler of the right. chicken world. And, uh, yeah, what is it we're supposed to laugh about? How, how is this funny? How is, the, what, what, how's this warrant, how's the situation warrant a clown spokesman? <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, it's a very dark cartoon, but, but some people yeah. got it. Some people wrote to me and said they loved it. Other people were like, what? What is this? What does it mean? I don't even get it. Yeah. What's funny about it? 
Nothing. The answer is nothing. That's the point. There's nothing funny about what we put these animals through, and yet we have a little a clown to sell sell this cruelty and misery to children. Right. Yeah, it's really crazy. Absur- yeah, you don't have to invent the absurdity. That's already there. Right. You know. We got an earful in VegCast 32 from Dr. John McDougall, who's gotten exasperated at meat eaters' stubborn inertia about ever changing their diets. How do you go about trying to take this uh, uh, maybe uh, somewhat austere message and making it fun and, uh, you know, uh, making it something that people want to get into? That's a tough one. I mean, I've spent 35 years trying to do that. And actually, I've kind of given up, to tell you the truth, is I used to, as a medical doctor, I used to be just focused on getting my patients or people healthy getting them off their blood pressure pills and their diabetic medications and their cholesterol medications, get them to lose weight, bowels functioning good, keep from dying prematurely of uh, dietary cancers and heart disease. That used to be my whole focus. But, you know, I don't really care anymore. They could just die. I really don't care. <laughs> i tell you the truth. I mean, really. Uh, but, uh, but there's another issue that has taken over my, my concern is that these people are polluting my world. And, you know, I'm very concerned, and that's why I'm becoming more active again, I'm very concerned about the fact that they're ruining the opportunity for my grandchildren to have a future by their crummy diet. Right. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, about, I'm here to tell them you can't do that. You want to kill yourself? Fine, do it. I don't really care. But you want to kill the world around me, my personal world? Eh, it's not allowed. And I, I encourage every person who's interested in good health, be you a vegetarian or not, who understand this message, understands the message of planetary pollution, due to the, uh, the excessive eating habits of people in this world, for you to stand up, no longer tolerate these people, step on them or step over them. Doesn't wow. matter, just don't put up with it. Okay, well, that's, that's kind of a, a, a strong message. It, uh, I mean, most... Do you think I was clear and strong about that? I think that you were. I mean, Okay, then, you, then uh, I guess I probably really mean it. A rare jaunt into vegetarian history with Zinnia Convisor, who grew up in and around her mother's and father's legendary vegetarian hotel in the Catskills in VegCast 35. Well, I'm a, I was a vegetarian. I grew up amongst vegetarians, although 95% of our clientele were not vegetarians. Mm-hmm. I had family that were not vegetarians, but they came to the hotel. My cousins all grew up at the hotel eating vegetarian food. Right. They may have gone into town and had a sandwich once in a while, mm-hmm. but basically they were eating vegetarian food all summer long. Right. But so it was never a temptation to you to, at some point in your life to say, no. you know, that was just something that I grew up with. Now I'll... No. I'll go off I, on. I, I, I didn't just grow up a vegetarian. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I grew up in a vegetarian world. In VegCast 36, we got Mike Hudak to evaluate a study that was getting a lot of ink and still does for its supposed conclusion that small amounts of livestock on land is more, subs- more sustainable than a vegan approach. And so I've, I've looked at that press release and I've also read the report and and I can say that the, the, the report does not uh, argue for livestock benefiting the land. It doesn't talk about environmental benefits or, or, or deficits in any way. It only talks about the carrying capacity of various diets that contain varying amounts of meat and varying amounts of fat. And, and we can talk about that in some more detail. There's some interesting things in there. What I did find, having read the report, is that there are uh, statements in the press release that are misleading. 
I oh. won't say that they're outright lies, but um, but uh, certainly they are uh, not supported without qualification uh, by uh, data and results from the report that the press release is about. VegCast 43, we went there, baby. Yeah, with Rory Friedman. Is there a downside to using bitch in the title of a best-selling book pushing veganism? You know, the, the argument doesn't really doesn't land on me. I, I'm also somebody who doesn't bristle at tough language, so I can see why somebody who thinks the word bitch needs to be reclaimed or that it shouldn't be used at all and that it's a misogynistic term, but I, I'm, I swear like a sailor, and there's really no words that offend me or that, that make me cringe or blanch, so it's just saucy language to me. Well, so you don't you see no difference between using bitch and using, uh, you know, the the traditional four letter words that uh, you know are part of the the uh, George Carlin's seven words that we can't say on television. I mean, to me, there's a difference between so-called scatological uh, language, which may or may not have to do with uh, with sex or with actual scatology, and words that are that kind of carry. Uh, a derogatory uh, intent toward a certain group of people. Yeah, I understand if, you know, if two people are fighting and, and a woman is raising her um, her voice or, or making her opinion known, if she's referred to as a bitch, that's certainly offensive because that's, you know, being sexist. Calling our book Skinny Bitch, I could see why somebody would would think, and you know, and I get it. I, even right now I'm, my brain is, is stopping and going backwards and going, oh, yeah, I get it. But again, you know, we didn't try and make any stand with this book. Again, it was just a cheap attention-getting ploy so that people would say, whoa, that, nobody says bitch on the cover of a book. What is that? Right. And as you, as you point out, that worked very well. Uh, but but that, when, we, uh, when we take that ends justifies the means kind of strategic attitude, it, it then begs the question of how far, you know, what ends we can, we can go to. And I just wanted to bring in that, that uh, a vegan strip club example out in Portland uh, that has gotten some attention and um, you know a strip club by itself may or may not be you may or may not agree that it's an inherently sexist institution but is there can you think of a line that you would say you know this this in the service of educating people about animals I would not countenance you know I don't want to criticize anyone who's doing whatever it is they're doing to for the movement because you know, I made a decision to write this book, and, and for me, this is the way I, you know, I, I said I cannot sit around and do nothing about what's happening to these animals, and this is what I'm going to do to attack this problem and to try and be part of the solution. And I feel good about it, and I feel good about the effort, and I feel good about the response, and I feel good about not just doing nothing. And there were times before where I would sit around and say, you know, why doesn't this group do that or this group do that or all the groups should come together and work on this. And then it, and I would have all these ideas in my head of how the movement could be farther along if people would only do this. And it's easy to sit in your house or sit on your computer and criticize the efforts of others. And it's an entirely different ballgame to, to be somebody who's out there doing something. So whether or not I would... Um, whether I would attack the problem the way other people have or whether or not I would promote things in the way that other people have, it's not necessarily for me to say what's the one way to do it or the right way or the wrong way to do it. I know what, what I've chosen to do and what I feel comfortable with. I'm never going to criticize the efforts of anybody else who's doing something to make the world a better place for animals. Okay. I appreciate everyone's efforts. I really, truly do. Okay. 
VegCast 44, again using the power of sound in a visit to NatureSoy in Philadelphia, where you can hear tofu being made. First right here, you can hear the floor being hosed down, uh, which happens periodically. And now I am asking about the soybeans that are being rinsed and being ground. And uh, you'll hear Gene Hose saying that they are ground into a slurry. Vegcast 49, we talked to James Levesque upon the launch of the website humanemyth.org. We're, we're building a website called humanemyth.org, and that website is basically exploring the issue of humane animal products and bringing um, information about that issue both to the general public and to people involved in animal advocacy. So when you say humane animal products... That's, that's a kind of a loaded term right there. Are there humane animal products? Right. Well, that's precisely the, the point that we explore in, in the website, is that based on our extensive communication and collaboration over the years with people who are investigators of the farming industry, people who have founded sanctuaries, and former farmers, it's, there's a very clear consensus that it's not really possible to raise and kill animals to produce products in a way that could be fairly described as compassionate or respectful or humane. And that the, 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 the idea that it could be done in a, in a so-called humane manner is what we consider to be a myth that is being propagated, unfortunately, by some animal advocacy organizations and also certainly by the animal using industry. Now, in VegCast 50, I went all the way to Canada to interview Stéphane Golot of Quebec City about veganic gardening. We recorded the interview twice. The version on VegCast proper, VegCast 50, was our conversation in English, but we also made available a version in French. Uh, here's just a little bit of that, where Stéphane explains the meaning of végiculture. Ah, uh, alors... Le, le sujet est la végéculture et est-ce que tu peux euh, l'expliquer très court ou très simplement 
ben, la végiculture, ça vise à faire connaître les idées, la, la façon de cultiver qui repose sur le, les végétaux plutôt que reposer sur les produits animaux. Donc, on, on essaye de cultiver sans utiliser de fumier animal, mais aussi sans utiliser de poudre d'os, de farine de sang, de farine de plume, etc., qui souvent, et même généralement, proviennent d'industries ou euh, d'animaux élevés en batterie. Chris Walla, one of the founders of Death Cab for Cutie, joined us on VegCast 51. We played some of his and his band's music and talked about how his vegetarianism affected his music. Do you ever say, you know, I'm going to write a song that's going to get people thinking about this in a very specific way? No, I, I don't think I've written a specific song at this point. Like, there's little, there's little bits and pieces of lyrics that, um, that point to it. But I think that, you know, if I, if I end up writing about it, it's sort of, um, I guess in general, like if I'm writing about, uh, if I'm writing about any social issues or political issues and, you know, factory farming and vegetarianism included, like I'm, I'm doing it much more in a way of, Um, just trying, trying to encourage people to connect to whatever they are doing or thinking or talking about or eating from day to day. I just feel like as a society we're completely disconnected from every, you know, from every little corner of our lives. Like right. we're, you know, we live in a country where it's, I feel like there are a lot of places where it's difficult to even know your neighbors anymore right. or to know like who you're sitting next to on the bus and certainly to know where your food came from, like be it a vegetarian diet or a meat diet. Like it's, I, I think that just really just encouraging people to try and get, you know, connected to the source of their food I think is really important. Okay. And I think that it, it ultimately makes for... I mean, it has made me a ton healthier. Like, I've been, I mean, I've been a vegetarian now for 16 years, but there have been times in that 16 years where I've been a total, like, just a junk food vegetarian, just eating, you know, like, I, right. and, you know, at, at different points, like on the early tours when we really didn't have a lot of money, it was um, just necessity. I mean, it's, and, you know, there wasn't, There's just not a lot of groceries between uh, Lawrence, Kansas, and Denver, Colorado. And if you have to eat something, like, it's just, it's whatever happens to be there. So there was a lot of, like, you know, peanut butter and sour cream and onion potato chip sandwiches and stuff like that. It was pretty <laughs> terrible. But, right. but, yeah, I mean, in recent years, just sort of simplifying, simplifying my diet a little more and just getting to single source foods and just simple ingredients has really made a huge difference in in my health and the way my brain works from day to day and from right. minute to minute and all that sort of thing. So I, I don't know. I think that just um, just getting connected to it as a as a way of life in general I think is something that I, I try and encourage and right. every now and again it pops up in a song. <laughs> in VegCast 61, we had the scoop, the inside story, on Dr. Michael Greger's appearance on the Colbert Report as an expert on, well, just listen. So they needed an expert to explain what exactly are the risks of having a hedgehog in one's home. Okay. You know, it's funny, he, uh, so, so I get called from the producer, 
And I didn't have no ideas about head sharks. I think it was about exotic pet diseases, so it's a big field. And he calls up and says, well, we don't just need someone, you know, who knows about exotic pets. We need someone who knows about diseases of hedgehogs. So I'm at my computer, and so here I am madly Googling hedgehog diseases. And I'm on the phone, and I say, hedgehog diseases? Like I try to, you know, pause and ask, you know, restate the question so I have more time to Wikipedia this thing. And I go, I am an expert in hedgehog diseases. And I'm squinting at the screen going, oh, they can have a variety of diseases. You know, and I start listing through this, and I just sound like I have this encyclopedic knowledge at the tip of my, you know, funny. <laughs> Why didn't they just call up the Wikipedia page themselves and have somebody put on a white coat? And, and exactly, I know. And know, it's funny, when I showed up there, yeah. um, you know, I come in my white coat because it's got the monogram, my name on it, you know, oh, the yeah. hospital I was working at. And 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 the stage manager goes, "Wow, you're actually a real doctor," <laughs> you know, as opposed to just throwing white coats on people. Well, yeah, because anybody can put a white coat on. You can get those at a costume sh store, but if right. it has your name monogrammed on it, they know that you're for real because uh, they know that you got one from a costume shop and spend ten bucks. <laughs> in VegCon '68, I followed up on an argument Heather Mills and I had had at a panel at Summerfest about tactics for changing hearts and minds. Let me just ask you, since you brought up Prop 2, and we had a, a little discussion about this at Summerfest in the animal rights panel about, um, you know, animal rights, whether uh, the best approach to it is uh, kind of a hardline approach. You obviously are, were a supporter of Prop 2, and I, w I just wanted to know, I mean, you're, you're out there doing this basically activism in terms of getting this food before people who might not otherwise taste it, and that's one form of activism right there. And I, I just wondered if you have, um, if if you believe that there is, you know, there is activism that c can actually work counterproductively, because some people believe that uh, Prop 2 is counterproductive because it gets people thinking, oh, well, now the animals are being taken care of, I can go ahead and eat meat. No, I mean, it's about continuing campaigning and the, and the true awareness of any campaign that you do. It's when we got 27 countries to, to ban dog and cat fur, that's not the end of the road. Uh -huh. you know. But what I did was I got the fur industry on my side. I used an opposition tactic by saying, look, it's not good for you that people think they could be wearing dog and cat fur in Europe and not fox, mink or sable. Well, of course, I'm totally anti-fox, mink or sable or any fur, right. but it's about creating something that's going to create a solution straight away and save two million cats and dogs. It's the same thing with how we got everything through in Strasbourg for the seal fur. Mm -hmm. So it's about setting up your strategy, sticking to it and following it through and not just letting it go and, and, and not making it aware to people what the consequences are and what other areas need to be, you know, dealt with and eliminated. So, you know, it, life is a constant campaign for justice and fairness and, um, you know, many things come along to test you along the way. But what I've found with all the campaigns I've done over 20 years now is that we always get there in the end and uh, watch out because V-Bytes, is going to be all over the planet, and people are suddenly, just like they thought veggies were crazy 20 years ago, they're going to, you know, and as, as they now understand smoking is bad for you, they're going to understand that meat and dairy is just destroying the planet. VegCast 73 contained a review of Jonathan Safran 4's Eating Animals, but I could not get clearance at that time to use this clip in which I ask for point blank whether he is a 
vegan. So here in a VegCast 100 exclusive is how he answered me. I'm, I'm still not clear whether you self-identify as a vegan or whether you could, can you just give me a yes or no on that? Um, I would say by, uh, by a strict definition, no. Okay. But that um, I certainly try not to, um, I would say it's very rare. Right. Okay, I'm just wondering if, if, if uh, do you think that if you had, like, made the book really about rejection of all factory, because, you know, dairy and eggs are factory farmed, if you had made it, you know, made drawn the line there and said it's not just about eating animals, it's about not eating, uh, you know, the byproducts of animal slavery or whatever, do you think that you would have cut <laughs> cut out a lot of uh, the impact, the possible impact the book could have? I'm not sure. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a, I, I, first of all, I should say I wouldn't eat factory farmed uh, eggs or dairy uh -huh. ever. And if there are any sort of like exceptions to a street veganism, it would only be, um, you know, like a kind of, uh, like it'd be very selective. But eggs and dairy are different mm -hmm. um, because, um, you know, eggs are something that chickens naturally produce and milk is something that cows naturally produce. Of course, cows have to be constantly impregnated. Right. But, um, and I, I don't actually drink milk of any kind. But, um, you know, cow, uh, chickens do naturally lay eggs. And there is a way of doing it that is... Um, entirely, where none of the arguments in the book apply to it, I guess that's what I would say. Right. It, it would have, it, it's just a broader conversation. Right. And I felt myself very often in the course of writing the book regretting that I wasn't being as comprehensive as I wanted, but in the interest of um, not, not just like, you know, avoiding alienation, but simply making a book that, you know, like a cogent, telling a cogent story. Right, okay. I had to leave certain things out. With many, many minutes of animal rights theorist Gary Francione in the VegCast archives to choose from, I had to try and find one self-contained clip that would give a taste of uh, the scope of his arguments, and I picked this minute from VegCast 76. The bottom line is, as long as we are killing 56 billion animals a year, every year for food, not including fish and other aquatic animals, 56 billion, as long as we are doing that, and the best justification we have for that is it tastes good, we will never see peace. We have the ability to change the world if we want. The sad thing is how easy it would be and how we all sit around thinking, Oh, that's utopian. Oh, that's idealistic. Sorry. What's idealistic in a negative way, what is crazy and unrealistic, is to believe that we can perpetuate, we can continue to live this way, and that it isn't going to destroy us, destroy our planet, and destroy us as moral and spiritual beings. It's already doing that. And if we don't respond to that 
that spiritual and moral corrosion and to that environmental degradation and to what we're doing to our health, to the health of our children, to, to you know, the fact that animal agriculture is condemning a substantial part of the world's population to starvation, the fact that animal agriculture uses water that is going to become as precious a commodity, more precious than oil is. And I mean, the fact that we're not confronting this, that's what I regard as unrealistic. That's what I regard as fantasy. My, my proposals aren't fantasy at all. They're quite realistic. In VegCast 82, we talked with sexual politics of meat author Carol Adams on the 20th anniversary edition of her book and heard also from the woman who wrote the foreword for that edition, Nellie Mackay. Feminists don't have a sense of humor. Feminists just want to be alone. Feminists spread vicious lies and rumors. They have a tumor on their funny bone. They say child molestation isn't funny. Rape and degradation's just a crime. Rampant prostitution, sex for money. What's wrong with that? Can't these chicks do anything but whine? In a call to New Zealand, I talked with Jeffrey Musayef Mason about his book on humans and dogs' unique mutual relationship. But I asked, can we really say for sure it's unique? It almost sounds like another one of those humans are the only animals that do such and such. Uh, when you say this about humans and dogs, I'm wondering, might there, <laughs> might there actually be other species that are, uh, that are getting along with each other that are, I mean, I'm wondering, might there actually be stuff out there that we we just don't yet know enough about and so might it might we want to back off on you know being very absolute about saying this relationship is unique in the animal kingdom yeah, it's good, yeah excellent point Vance you're, you're totally right absolutely correct and in fact you know I think over the next 50 years one of the most interesting things will be for us to start discovering ways in which we're not unique <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, every time we've ever said we're unique in some way, it, it gets shot down. Right. And here I am in this new book saying we're the only two animals that, you know, make friends across the species barrier. And probably 20 years from now, we'll discover not true at all. Orcas make friends with, with dolphins or whatever. We don't know that at present, but you're absolutely correct to stress that we don't know very much right now. So who are we to say that there aren't giraffes in the in, in the forest that are hang out with elephants. Nobody's seen it to date, but that doesn't mean much. Out of the various holiday-themed interviews, I chose this one from VegCast 92 with Neil Barnard explaining his call for vegans to base our Thanksgivings on the Three Sisters tradition. What you're proposing is uh, we should uh, kind of center our, our Thanksgiving dinner around the Three Sisters, and uh, a lot of people initially, when they hear that, uh, would say, oh, wait a minute, that's going to be just so, you know, it's, it's not exciting, it's just some corn and some beans and some squash. But, uh, I mean, are there are there a lot of different ways that you can do that, or do you have, have you uh, experimented with that, or what? Yeah, yes, I have, and I think it's much more exciting, 
because let's face it, when, when people get together and there's a big dead bird in the middle of the table, um, some of the people, particularly everybody who's vegetarian around the table, is not very thrilled with it. And there really isn't anybody who thinks, oh boy, I get to eat turkey. Um, I, I know that it's a special time. We're glad to be with our families and we're glad to watch football and maybe go out to the movies afterwards. But turkey is not so exciting that a person says at any other time of the year, why don't we go buy a turkey and cook it up? They, they don't really <laughs> like it that much. It's, at that time of year, it's just a tradition, and that is the only reason it's in the middle of the table. Um, the reason I like the Three Sisters concept is nutritionally it's great, environmentally it's great, but there's something else, too. I'm not really a terribly spiritually oriented person, but I have to say that in a world where aggression is so widespread, I'm talking about wars and human conflicts and prejudices and so forth, the Three Sisters has a little bit of a meaning that the turkey does not have. And the meaning is that you've got different plants, corn and beans and squash, that are very, very different. They're from completely different botanical classes, but they support each other. The corn gives the beans a leg up. The beans return the favor by fertilizing the soil. The squash protects all of them. And you can think of it as a little bit of poetry. And if there are kids there, you explain to them the symbolism of it, that once a year at this time of harvest, we're going to actually eat foods that demonstrate the concept of coexistence and getting along and living in harmony. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. Now, the meal itself, you start off with a bowl of hot butternut squash soup. Oh, man, you, there, there's nothing more delicious than that. If you want to put a little nutmeg or cinnamon or whatever on top, terrific. You can finish the meal with, with pumpkin pie. Everybody's happy with that. And in between time, if you want to have, there are three sisters casseroles where you start off by layering uh, you, you put actual corn husks down at the bottom, and you layer the corn, beans, and squash. And there are just wonderful ways of, of, of doing this. Our last clip from VegCast 93 is from a roundtable where I got the owners of new Philly venues, Grindcore House Cafe and Blackbird Pizzeria, to talk about launching these already beloved all-vegan restaurants. The first person to speak after me is Blackbird owner Mark Mabus. It's almost, it seems like it's getting to a tipping point with non-vegan places saying, oh, we've got to have something vegan, something that says it's vegan on the, on the menu, not just have a salad and tell vegans they can have a salad, but we should spotlight something so that they feel welcome. And I'm just wondering, does that, I mean, do you guys notice that and does it make you think, great, you know, it's it's really mainstreaming the concept of vegan or do you think oh no the people you know where they might drag everybody to grindcore house or blackbird they're going to go along with this other thing because they can get something vegan there i mean is it a double-edged sword or what um i guess my opinion on it is really that i mean i feel as though the more the more vegan food that's offered the better that's honestly how i feel like like for instance i don't I don't like to think of us as like competing with other vegetarian places or other non-vegetarian places that are offering vegan food because realistically I want more people to be eating vegetarian and vegan options than eating non-vegetarian options. So I mean that's been my viewpoint for a long time. I mean it's just kind of how I try to look at things. It may not be the best from a business standpoint of viewpoints to have. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know. I, I do feel like the more people that are eating uh, vegan foods, then the, the more people will be drawn to our establishments. And, I mean, that's, that's really 
just how I feel about things. That's sort of like what uh, I picked up over the years, just talking to, uh, you know, some restaurant owners that I worked for, like uh, uh, my old bosses at Blossom and uh, Rich at Horizons. Um, I think that's kind of the general feel, um, is that, you know, it's not like vegan food is everywhere, and it's kind of like it's way better for people to be exposed to it than not be exposed to it, because then it, it, it kind of like makes them think about it more. And, it, it, you know, in that, then... Uh, then our businesses should be better from it. Um, you know, and, and also, you know, when you were talking about that kind of catching on and stuff, I do, I remember I was working at Horizons when it first opened, and when, I remember when Horizons first opened, then there a million places started offering ve- vegetarian options like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that has not gone away. And it's, you know, all of those options, it wasn't like as soon as, like, Horizons was around for a while, people stopped offering it. Like, all those places still have vegetarian options. They still get ordered all the time. And, um... You know, Horizons is still doing great business. So, you know, as that is an example, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we can kind of follow follow suit uh, with what we've seen with other vegan establishments. But I, I think the more options you have for a particular location, whether it's Philadelphia as a whole or a particular neighborhood, vegans and vegetarians are more likely to actually go there. You know, and if I'm with a couple yeah. friends and we don't all want the same thing, we could still wind up going to South Street now and someone, a couple people get pizza, and maybe someone else will get some, like, you know, falafel or whatever. Of course, the third leg of the tripod on which VegCast is usually built, along with the interviews and the music, is the science fact, which, by and large, and there have been a couple of uh, exceptions, but... Uh, by and large, this is a peer-reviewed study uh, that's being written about in some mainstream source that has some information of interest to vegetarians and vegans. And there uh, have been various topics. Uh, there have been some interesting things such as the study on slaughterhouse workers and violent crime uh, that led to uh, veg casts of their own. But typically, these have centered around two different Uh, kinds of studies. One is studies of consciousness in animals, and the other is studies of the benefits of plant-based foods and the harm that can come to you from eating animal-based products. And uh, again, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will say that in the five years that I have been doing this and looking for uh, studies and reports on studies to do as science facts, and granted that I may have a bit of a selection bias, but I don't think that's the operative factor here. I have yet to find or hear of one study that says that animals' consciousness is less somehow than we thought that it was, or any study saying that uh, meat and meat-based products uh, has some nutritional benefit to confer on human beings that is unobtainable Uh, through plant-based food. Still watching for those, but uh, in the meantime, we'll continue in our current uh, approach with the... Science Fact. Okay, and now it really is finally time to get out of here and call VegCast 100 a done deal. Uh, Hope you have a happy Labor Day. Uh, As I said, with uh, some of my time changing now uh, as I adopt the role of a vegan newspaper columnist. 
I am going to now officially move VegCast scheduling back to one per month. So once a month, you'll have a great chance to enjoy that VegCast goodness that you've come to know and love or come to know or would like to know. Whatever you do, uh, you're going to have that chance once a month instead of once a month sometimes, twice a month other times, uh, and you never know. I'm going to be very strict about keeping to that schedule. And uh, we will, this was supposed to be out in August, so this actually counts as August, and I'm going to have another VegCast for September coming up. So listen for that, and for now, we're out of here. Yes, that is it, 100 episodes of VegCast, and I want to thank everybody who has contributed so far by being on the show or uh, letting us use uh, your music or tipping me to some information, scientific or otherwise, or even just uh, writing in to say that you enjoy the show. You can reach me at vance at vegcast.com. You can also subscribe at iTunes or some other podcast outlets. I encourage you to do that. And again, we will be back before the end of September. But until then, please get out there and live like you mean it. Veg. Cat.